Though it's impossible to talk about Sharon Tate and not acknowledge her death, her murder has become the focal point of her story. Charles Manson said that having his followers kill Sharon made her more famous than she had ever been in life. I beg to differ. Since the time of his arrest, Manson became one of the most highly publicized figures and still remains incredibly popular. Countless films, documentaries, books, etc. have been created about him and his so-called family. While Sharon and those who were killed that night on Cielo Drive merely represent a bygone era, a turning point in the American psyche. Sharon has slipped through the cracks in our history, being replaced by the men who controlled her life and narrative. But I'm going to share with you the real story of Sharon Tate. Welcome to Gone But Not Forgotten, the podcast all about remembering the lives and careers of stars who left us too soon. Sharon Marie Tate was born on January 24, 1943, to Doris and Paul Tate in Dallas, Texas. When she was just six months old, her mother entered her into the Miss Tiny Tot of Dallas pageant, which Sharon won. It was the first of her many pageant successes. Paul Tate served in the Army, causing his family to move around frequently during Sharon's childhood, including multiple cities in Texas, Washington, and California. This made it difficult for Sharon to make and keep friends, so she mostly kept to herself. She did not like her father's strict rules about what she could and couldn't do and which boys she was allowed to date. Sharon loved to cook and learned many family recipes from her mother. For several years, she aspired to be a professional chef. At another point in her life, Sharon wanted to be a therapist, since she loved reading and learning about psychiatry. In 1960, the Tates, now including Sharon's younger sisters, Deborah and Patricia, moved to Verona, Italy. Sharon attended Vincenza American High School, where she was one of many American teenagers living in Italy because of their parents' military careers. The class became very close, as there were hardly more than 50 students there at a time, and, as one put it, it was impossible for everyone not to know everyone else. Sharon caught the eye of almost all of her male classmates, their memories of her being mostly of her immense beauty and poise. Classmate Sheila Boyle-Plank said that Sharon always went out of her way to make everyone feel positive and valued. She was very beautiful in the physical sense, but seemed to be more focused on being a nice person. Sharon was a representative for student council, played on the basketball team, was a member of the cheerleading squad, and was voted both homecoming and senior prom queen. Shortly after graduating high school, while out on a date with a soldier, Sharon was raped, something she did not reveal to anyone until later on in her life. She was severely traumatized by the event, but spent much of her life advocating for her rights and wasn't afraid to speak up about sexism and the double standard. Later in her career, she said, by the time you get to the point where you have the power to run your own career, they call you a bitch. It's evident that men believed that they had control over Sharon and her body from the very beginning. When she was married to director Roman Polanski, Sharon's friend said that Roman told her how to dress, he told her what makeup he liked, what he didn't like, he ruled her entire life from the time she met him. Before her relationship with Polanski, Sharon dated actor-slash-dancer Richard Bamer, who she started dating after meeting him on the set of Hemingway's Adventures of a Young Man. Sharon had been cast as an extra. The two were engaged in 1962, but the relationship did not last. Bamer encouraged Sharon to get into acting, setting her up with his agent, Harold Gefsky. On the set of Barabbas, Sharon met actor Jack Palance and started a brief relationship with him. 
He helped her craft her acting skills. Sharon moved to Los Angeles in early 1962 to try and find work, but was unsuccessful and moved back to Italy. Paul Tate was soon promoted to major, and the family was relocated to San Pedro, California. Sharon continued to try and find work, eventually landing a seven-year contract with producer Martin Ransehoff and his company, Filmways. Throughout the early to mid-1960s, Sharon was hired for small roles in film and TV, including Beverly Hillbillies and a bit part on Mr. Ed. This was to help her get used to being in front of a camera and work on her acting abilities without giving away all of her talents to the public just yet. I feel, at least in my estimation, that every person, if they want to be an actress, if they want to stay in the acting world, which is a pretty tough world, before you even make an appearance, it's very necessary to learn your craft first and take as much time and do as much as you can. Sharon started dating actor Philippe Fourquet in 1963. Their romance was very passionate, but also very violent. At one point, Sharon was sent to the emergency room from injuries she had suffered and ended the relationship. Years later, long after her death, Fourquet claimed that Sharon had been the aggressor. Sharon met celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring at the Whiskey A Go Go in Los Angeles, and the two hit it off right away. They started dating in 1964, and Sharon moved in with him. Sebring was known for being a playboy, and though he and Sharon were very much in love, she did not think they should be married. She later said that, It was a fine relationship, but the truth is, I was no good for Jay. I'm not organized. I'm too flighty. Jay needs a wife, and at 23, I'm not ready for wifehood. Sharon tended to be drawn towards older, more domineering men, and had a hard time saying no to people. She had a mindset of thinking she could always make things work, which, while not necessarily a bad thing, caused people to take advantage of her kindness and habit to easily forgive. Many people who knew her said that Sharon was always looking for the good in people and never wanted to give up on them. Sharon was coming into herself at a time when the sexual and social rigidity of the 1950s were starting to fade away and turn into the so-called free love movement of the 1960s. This era was still based on highly misogynistic ideals, essentially an excuse for men to use women as sexual objects, all in the name of quote-unquote love. Despite that, Sharon was always very much a feminist in her views on sex. In fact, she was an early advocate for the birth control pill. Sharon often said she loved the hippie lifestyle, and her home always had an open-door policy. One of her best friends, Sheila Wells, said in late 1969 that Sharon was so trusting, so eager to accept people as they were, so generous. Why, there were times this past year or so when a whole bunch of people would be at her house and she'd come up to me and say, hey, I wonder who so-and-so is. Just like it wasn't her house and she wasn't entitled to know. Sharon never shut her door to anyone. She was friends with almost everyone who was anyone in Hollywood, including the likes of Steve McQueen, Warren Beatty, members of the Mamas and the Papas, and Mia Farrow. While this led to many strong and lifelong friendships, it also fueled rumors after her death of orgies and drug parties, which the press gobbled up and used as a way to blame the deceased for their own demise. Sharon admitted to doing drugs a few times, but she was not an addict and stopped taking any substances after she learned she was pregnant. However, she liked smoking, much to Roman Polanski's chagrin, preferring the Terratom brand. Ironically, when she was getting started in Hollywood, Sharon did ads for the Santa Fe Cigar Company, but was inexperienced and ended up passing out from too much smoke inhalation as a result of endless reshoots. Sharon landed her first film role in Eye of the Devil alongside childhood crush David Niven. 
the first day that David walked on the location, I, when I was younger, I thought, well, this is the man I'm going to marry. So when he came up, I told him, I said, well, you know, I, I had plans for marrying you for many years. Oh, gee, he's so suave and so elegant and so handsome and witty. And the funny thing about it is I did my first film with him. And Deborah Carr, an actor whom Sharon greatly admired. MGM started publicizing her and preparing their star by having countless photo shoots, interviews, and vocal, physical, and acting classes. Sharon excels in her first performance, adopting a very believable British accent and amping up the creepy factor, much unlike her normally cheerful and bright demeanor in real life. Producer Martin Ransohoff was working on The Fearless Vampire Killers in 1966 with Roman Polanski and suggested Sharon for the role of Sarah Chagall. Polanski already had actress Jill St. John in mind, but after watching Sharon's screen test, accepted her for the part. I adore it. Besides, it's good for your health. Once a day is the very least, don't you agree? Yes. The two initially did not get along. In fact, Sharon claimed she never wanted to work with Polanski again, but they began to fall in love throughout the course of filming. Sharon was still dating Jay Sebring at this point, but told him she was in love with Roman. Sebring wanted to meet Polanski and give his approval. The two ended up hitting it off, and all three of them remained close friends until Sebring and Tate's deaths. Sharon and Roman started renting a home in Los Angeles and became the talk of the town. She was one of the most popular and beautiful stars, and he was a very well-renowned director. They married in London in January of 1968. Sharon made two more films in the United States under Ransohoff's production company, Don't Make Waves and Valley of the Dolls. She was growing increasingly unhappy with the parts she was being offered, as she felt like she was only being used for her looks rather than her talent. She told Look Magazine in 1967 that all people see is a sexy thing. People are very critical on me. It makes me tense. I've got an enormous imagination. I imagine all kinds of things, like that I'm all washed up. I'm finished. I think sometimes that people don't want me around. While Sharon is able to display her comedic chops in Don't Make Waves, and even did her own stunts, the film is extremely male-gazy and constantly exploits Sharon's body. Mr. Cofield, do you find me attractive? I mean, if you were a man, man. would you be attracted to me? She got along well with her co-stars, but the atmosphere on set grew tense and uncomfortable when one of the skydiving camera operators was blown out to sea and killed. After the incident, everyone just wanted to finish the movie, which was received to mixed audience and critic reviews alike. Sharon's fourth film of 1967, Valley of the Dolls, was a commercial and critical flop, but has found cult status over the years. Sharon reportedly did not like the book nor the script, but signed on to do the film anyway, most likely because she knew it would help further her career. Mother, I know I don't have any talent, and I know all I have is a body, and I am doing my bust exercises. Goodbye, Mother. I'll wire you the money first thing in the morning. Goodbye. Director Mark Robson was especially hard on Sharon, nitpicking every aspect of her performance. Sharon said Hollywood tried to make me into a sex symbol, a blonde goose. That's their favorite idea. Hollywood only has a few studios and they're run by old men. They're certain that to entertain the public, you just have to create a blonde star with shiny lips, rounded hips, and no brains. 
It was clear that Sharon was rightfully upset about her treatment in Hollywood, and it's such a shame that her talents were wasted on molding her into the ditzy blonde image that was so highly sought after in the 1960s. She was often compared to Marilyn Monroe, someone who Sharon admired and respected, but ultimately did not want to be compared to. Well, nobody could ever be Marilyn Monroe, in my words. I, I think she was a fantastic one person, and nobody could ever duplicate that. Sharon wanted to make a name for herself, having her talent speak rather than her appearance. Sharon broke off her contract with Ransahoff and went on to make The Wrecking Crew alongside Dean Martin, who said he had a great time filming with Sharon and would love to work with her again. She also befriended Bruce Lee, who was the martial arts coordinator on the film, responsible for choreographing and training the stars for the many fight scenes. Sharon became close friends with co-star Elka Summer, whom she confided to with her marriage problems and Roman's infidelity. While they appeared to be the it couple on the outside, the Polanski's marriage had already begun to fall apart after mere months. Sharon supposedly said, We have a good arrangement. Roman lies to me, and I pretend to believe him. A friend said that when Sharon was pregnant, Polanski treated her like she was a piece of excess baggage. He was even pointedly cruel to her in front of others at times, calling her a dumb hag and criticizing her whenever she expressed an opinion. That being said, Sharon was still very much in love with Roman and hoped that the arrival of their baby would help patch things up between them. Sharon and Roman moved back to London so Sharon could do her final film, 12 Plus One, also known as 13 Chairs. It was filmed in Italy during the spring and summer of 1969 while Sharon was pregnant. She had waited as long as possible to tell Roman that she was expecting, guessing correctly that he wanted her to get an abortion. Sharon waited until she was a few months pregnant to break the news. Roman was shocked at first, but adjusted to the excitement of becoming a father for the first time. Sharon extensively prepared for the arrival of their child, buying all kinds of clothes, toys, and setting up the nursery in their home. During shooting of 12 plus 1, great lengths were taken to hide Sharon's growing belly. She was excited to work with screen legend Orson Welles. Her co-star, Terry Thomas, said that on the first day of shooting, Sharon told him, I can't act, but I somehow get by without anyone realizing, so don't worry. Actually, Sharon turned out to be entirely natural before the camera. She was nice, intelligent, and pretty. I wish I had been able to see the finished film. I've never been able to catch it. The film wrapped shortly before she was due to give birth. While Roman remained in London to continue working on his upcoming film, The Day of the Dolphin, Sharon returned to Cielo Drive in anticipation of the birth of her son. The last time her family ever saw her was on the day of the moon landing, July 20th, 1969. So when it came close to um, the time for the televised moon landing, we all piled into her big king-size bed, uh, Dad standing at the entrance of the doorway because he would never allow himself to relax in front of the rest of us. So he, he held up the doorway and that was a, a wonderful moment. We watched the moon landing together. We all know what happened to Sharon Tate on the fateful early hours of August 9th, 1969. And while I think it is definitely important to acknowledge her death, the point of my podcast is to focus away from her highly publicized murder and look at the woman she was in life. After her death, Sharon's mother Doris and sister Deborah attended all of the parole hearings for Sharon's murderers and fought for the rights of not only Sharon and her friends, but also for other victims of brutal crimes. 
What mercy, sir, did you show my daughter when she was begging for her life? What about her family? And what about the family that she was going to have, sir? Are these seven victims and possibly more going to walk out of their graves when you get paroled? Doris Tate helped pass the California Victims' Rights Bill, which allowed for victims' families to provide impact statements, and also helped found the Coalition on Victims' Equal Rights. Sharon's family continues to fight to keep her legacy alive today. Doris Tate said, You never forget it, not even with the passage of time. But, if in my work, I can help transform Sharon's legacy from murder victim to a symbol for victims' rights, I will have accomplished what I set out to do. Sheila Wells said that Sharon was so impressionable, so vulnerable, so easily swayed. She just accept people for what they were. She got involved with some very odd types because she thought she could help them. But all the while, it was Sharon herself who needed the help. You know, in just the last few months, Sharon was beginning to come into her own. She never cared about being beautiful. She never even really cared about acting. She just wanted to love and be loved. It's time for a special segment. Here are some of the roles that Sharon could have played and why she did not receive the part. Number one, Liesl, The Sound of Music. The part ended up going to Charmaine Carr. Sharon tested for the part, but was considered too old. The fact that she was not much of a singer may have also influenced this decision. Her sister Deborah said Sharon liked to sing for fun, but was nowhere near a professional. Number two, Christian in The Cincinnati Kid ended up going to Tuesday Weld. Steve McQueen and Sharon Tate were good friends, and McQueen often lobbied for Sharon to play parts in his films. The original director, Sam Peckinpah, wanted her in the role as well, but once producer Martin Ransahoff fired Peckinpah, Tate also went. She was thought to be too young and inexperienced for the part, Rosemary, in Rosemary's Baby. The role went to Mia Farrow. Roman Polanski thought about casting his wife in the titular role, but wanted a producer to bring her name up in the conversation, rather than him. Paramount wanted Mia Farrow. Tate supposedly appears in the background of a few scenes. Tate and Farrow became close friends during the filming of the movie. Number four, Bonnie. Bonnie and Clyde went to Faye Dunaway. Dozens of rising and popular young stars were considered for the part of Bonnie, Sharon being one of them. Number five, Tess. Tess of the Dubervilles went to Nastasia Kinski. Before her death, Sharon read the book and wanted to make a film version of it with Polanski. He ended up making the film several years later and dedicated it to Sharon. Thank you so much for listening to my first episode. Next week, I will be joined by my friend Louise to talk all things Sharon Tate and whether or not Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a proper portrayal of her. I'll see you next week. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at flick.loving.chick where I post all things movies and updates for the pod. Hey guys, uh, so I just wanted to jump back on here really quick. Um, While I was editing this episode, I remembered that I forgot to mention um, I will be including links in the description for the podcast episode, websites uh, for No Parole for the Manson Family, um, so you can sign petitions to keep the remaining Manson family members in jail, and also a link to Deborah Tate's website that she has dedicated to Sharon and remembering her legacy. Um, there's all kinds of photos, interviews, um, links, and resources for learning more about Sharon. Um, I will see you guys next week, and thank you so, so much for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it.
This episode was researched, written, edited, and hosted by me, Audrey Cornell. The music was written by Nia D'Amelio and produced by the Trident Network. Gone But Not Forgotten is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and other podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com.